Listener Production. Everything we know as normal is being challenged right now, and the shadow of uncertainty can feel long and looming and even lonely. In this moment of global crisis, I thought it would be useful to return to the conversations it would be good to hear again. I have put together a special episode of A Life of Greatness, purposefully curated to nourish and bring you respite, to fulfil your inner world, outer world and our lives together. I believe that people are resilient and strong and beautiful and kind because that's been my experience in life. Not exclusively, obviously, but that's what I believe. Hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. At the end of your life, I think if you can see that you left a trail that helped people in some way or made a difference, and you know you were honest and transparent and giving and kind in the face of hostility and anger, and you show compassion, that's a great life. Let's live with a full heart and remember even in times of adversity, to look after ourselves and one another. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Becoming consciously aware of your own thoughts is the first step to noticing the negative ones. What we tell ourselves on a regular basis, we start to believe, which can influence our reality. Being swept away by irrational beliefs, we draw our attention to negative thoughts, creating a negative reality. Cultivating and nurturing a positive narrative and consciously choosing positive thoughts is the first step to happiness and health. Ali Walker. In each moment, we have four choices, how to think, how to feel, how to sense and how to act. And so getting conscious is all about being aware of the choices that we're making. So for example, with our thoughts, we know now that a high proportion of our thoughts every single day are just on repeat from yesterday and the day before and the day before that. So we're quite routine creatures. And what it means to get conscious is to reflect on these automatic programs we have in our brain to think in a certain way and to make different choices that will lead us in a different direction. So in each moment, we're choosing our thoughts. We know that thoughts are just stories that we tell ourselves and those stories can change based on our conscious awareness of them. Dr. Joe Dispenza. Well, I think that many times uh, we need crisis or trauma or disease or diagnosis, some type of loss. Now, this to me is really the old model of change and transformation. And if your personality creates your personal reality and your personality is made up of how you think, how you act and how you feel, then if we keep thinking the same way, we keep acting the same way, we keep feeling the same way, our brain and body becomes very status quo. We start firing, wiring the same circuits and we begin to create automatic programs that become hardwired. By the same means, our emotional reactions are always conditioning our body over and over again. So in a sense, when we reach a point in our life where we no longer feel like ourselves and we're not interested in responding to people's calls or their texts, we're not interested in going out to dinner, doing the social things we typically do, we start kind of going within. And and because we're feeling differently than we normally do, 
we can see ourselves for the first time through the eyes of someone else. And we can pay attention to those unconscious thoughts, those automatic behaviors and habits and emotions that, they, that we live by on a daily basis. And that, that concept in neuroscience is called metacognition. So it begs the question, who's doing the observing of our thoughts? And that's consciousness. Dr. Bruce Lipton. And if you change your consciousness, you change your genetic activity. I go, 100% true. And all of a sudden... We move from a world where people think their illnesses are all due to genes. Uh, apparently, less than 1% of disease is even connected to genes. Really? Yes, 90% of disease is lifestyle. And I go, why is that important? Because we make lifestyle. And if we make lifestyle that's not in harmony, then we have disease. And if we live in a very harmonious lifestyle, then we manifest health. And all of a sudden, it's like, we're not victims. We're creators. But people didn't know that. So they let their thoughts run wild. The environment's always changing between day and night, cold and warm. Uh, you have to adjust the biology, so you have to read the environment. But I say, but the 50 trillion cells in my body do not see the environment. They're inside under the skin. So I said, well, then how can the cells adjust their biology if they can't see the environment? I go, the nervous system reads the environment and then tells the cells what's going on, okay? So that's how the cells respond. Now, here's the problem. Two people can be in the exact same environment and look at the same environment, but read different information. One says, oh, this is a healthy, wonderful, warm environment. The other one's like, oh my God, there's a scary environment. They're both in the same place. What's the point? The cells in their bodies are not responding to the real environment. The cells in the body are responding to the interpretation of the environment. So two people in the exact same environment, one could be totally unhealthy because that's what they interpret, and the other one could be totally sick because the fear of the environment is threatening, and then that, that creates the illness. So all of a sudden, it says, oh, my God, what we think is controlling our biology. And all of a sudden, it says, if you change what you think, you change your biology. And it sounds like, oh, that's a new agey. That's new agey. I go, look, placebo effect has been around for 100 years. I say, what does it represent? I say, someone's got an illness. Uh, and the doctor comes up and says, we got the, you know, the greatest new medicine, best thing ever made just for you, so expensive, and it's the best medicine. And you take this medicine and you get well. But then find out later, it was just a sugar pill. And so the point is very critical. Then what healed you? Not the sugar pill, your belief in the sugar pill. And that can create health out of any disease. And that's the result of positive thinking. Now, let me just add this because this is critical. We talk about placebo, positive thinking resulting in a healing of an illness. But negative thinking is equally powerful. But negative thinking works in the opposite direction. Rather than healing you like positive thinking, negative thinking can cause any disease. It can, you can die just from negative thinking. Uh, placebo is the result of positive thinking, healing. Nocebo is the name of negative thinking, which can cause any illness irregardless of the genes. Not, your mind will manifest whatever illness you want it to do. Why? You're a creator. <laughs> so your body will adjust itself to live in your belief, negative or positive. Positive. 
We are often told the unknown is a scary place and to avoid uncertainty at all costs, but it actually doesn't need to be that way. Deepak Chopra says, without uncertainty in the unknown, life is just a stale repetition of outworn memories. You become the victim of the past and your tormentor today is yourself, left over from yesterday. Relinquish your attachment to the known, step into the unknown, and you will step into the field of all possibilities. This is a time in our lives where we are faced with many uncertainties, with many difficult questions and so many unknowns. What happens if we embrace these unknowns and see where it takes us? Dr. Joe Dispenza. Most people live 70% of the time uh, by the hormones of stress. And stress is when your brain and body are knocked out of balance. And the stress response is what the body innately does to return itself back to balance. So if you keep living, which is 70% of the time for most people in that state of stress, in stress or in survival, the unknown, you always run from the unknown because uh, what actually creates the stress reaction is not being able to predict or control. So you know, the moment the person's no longer in the known, uh, the survival gene switches on and says, get back to safety, get back to familiar territory. There's, and, and better chances of uh, uh, running from the unknown than fully embracing the adventure. So um, most people then, they don't know that they can create a new future because the best way to predict your future then in a sense is to create it. And so that's where, that's where the interest for me becomes because you can learn and change in that state of crisis or, or suffering, or you can learn and change in a state of joy and inspiration. Bronnie Ware. We don't need to know all of the answers that one of the greatest freedoms we can give to ourselves is to actually surrender control. And, and surrendering is not giving up. Surrendering is reaching a place where you just say, I'm going to get my humanness out of the way here. I don't know what else to do. I've done absolutely everything I can to make this happen and it's not happening. I'm going to hand it over. To, to the greater scheme of life and trust that somehow this is going to work out. And then the more you, like it takes an immense amount of, well, it takes either immense amount of courage or an immense amount of pain from trying to control it. Either one, when you reach that place where you dare to surrender, that's the turning point. That's where life actually starts saying, oh, thank goodness, she's getting out of the way now. I can get mm. on with supporting her. And... As you practice surrendering more and more and breaking through your limits, like allowing more and more good to come to you, it actually becomes a habit where you don't have to reach that breaking point of pain and you don't even need as much conscious courage because you just know from practice that the more you get out of the way and allow life to, um, to support you, the more it will in, in ways you usually cannot even even ever, ever, ever imagined. In this current environment, choosing loving thoughts over fearful delusions can be hard. But becoming aware of how fear prevents you from experiencing life the way you want and inhibits you from showing up for both challenges and opportunities is key. Putting our faith in love instead of fear begins to transform our experiences in the most miraculous of ways, opening us up to the beauty life has to offer. Paul Selig. The guides have said again and again and again, they said the action of fear is to claim more fear. They say, look at every choice you've ever made because you were afraid and see what it got you. And more than likely, you're going to see you got more fear. So when we stop choosing in fear, we have begin to have a very different relationship with reality.
The guides say that what you put in darkness calls you to that darkness. Mm. So it's the idea of equivalency and vibrational accord. So in the book of mastery, they said, uh, imagine that you're, you're, you know, you walk into a cave and in that cave is the one person you never want to see again as long as you live. And now your, your opportunity and your challenge is to walk them out of the cave. And they say, because you put them in that darkness and they called you to the very darkness you put them in. So the whole point of forgiveness isn't about letting people off the hook. It's about self-liberation. Mm. Because if you want them in the darkness, you're going to join them. You know, if you deny the divine in anyone, you put them in darkness. Till you deny it in yourself just as well. And that's the whole problem we have with separation. Yes. So that's one way of understanding it. Sharon Salzberg. Well, in the Buddhist psychology, anger and fear are sometimes described as the same mind state, but in two different forms. Anger being the expressive, outflowing, energized form, and fear being the held in, frozen, imploding form of striking out against what's happening, wanting to declare it to be untrue. And so energetically, those are very much the opposite of love. You know, they're contracted. Mm. You're either recoiling or you're, you're hostile, you're pushing away. And love is actually considered, uh, or loving kindness, it's a very spacious state. It's a very open state, so it's different. Um, the beautiful quotation from the Buddha uh, is develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. Uh, it's so open. The space is so open, unconfined, and, and that's what love is like. Johnny Pollard. When we remove all fear and defensiveness and we're able to surrender our attention into this moment, uninhibited by the, the worry of the future or the regret of the past, and we are able to just be here, eventually, generally in a very short period of time, the revelation of the magnificence of our existence dawns upon us. And in that revelation, what we realize is that our capacity to know the magnificence of life is something that is sacred and foundational to our humanity. It is the foundational um, tenant that, that informs us of the way to be in relationship with life. When, we've, when we know that life is magnificent and it's precious, then we treat it as something that is sacred and we nurture it, our relationship to it. We nurture that. Gabby Bernstein. When we're in a lack mentality, we have a belief that if I don't get it, I'm not good enough and that there is not enough to go around and that somebody else having it means that I can't. But in the, the antidote to that is to really get yourself into an energy of wanting more for others. Mm. Because when you start to want more for others, then you will become, you will get yourself out of the energy, that needy energy of thinking that, that, it's, that there isn't enough. And you'll start to recognize that the more you want for others, the more you begin to believe that there's enough to go around. Giving to others makes us happy, even happier than spending on ourselves. What's more, our kindness to others creates a virtuous cycle that promotes lasting happiness. We each have our own lives, circumstances, relationships, environments and contexts. Sometimes things are complicated, sometimes they are simple, but your acts of kindness send out ripples that impact people at two and three degrees away from you. People you won't even meet in your life 
yet whose days are a little lighter simply because of something you might have said or done for another person. In the words of Mark Twain, kindness is a language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Dr. David Hamilton. So one of my favourite areas of research is the science of how kindness and compassion has a physical effect. For example, it's almost the opposite of stress. Physiologically speaking, the opposite of stress is the physical conditions created by a feeling of kindness. Because, for example, when you feel stressed, it's not a situation itself that generates the physical conditions of stress in the body. So when I say the physical conditions, you know, most people have heard of adrenaline and cortisol. So these are your stress hormones. But the stress hormones get created because of how you feel. It's not the situation itself. I mean, for example, two people could be sharing a car ride together and they get stuck in traffic and one of them feels stressed because they're not going to get to an appointment on time and the other one feels quite relaxed because there's nothing they can do about the situation. So one person will have high levels of stress hormones and the other person will have none. So it's not the situation that's causing the stress hormones in the body, it's how the person feels about it. So in other words, it's feelings of stress that generate stress hormones that create physical conditions of stress in the body. The reason I'm saying that is because when you be kind to someone and you really mean it, and it's important that you mean it, it generates a feeling that psychologists now refer to as elevation. And it's a feeling of kind of warmth or connection or, or you know, generosity or gratitude or expansion. It's any one of a number of nice feelings that you might associate with kindness. And elevation, what that does, instead of producing stress hormones, it produces what I call the kindness hormone, which is also called the love drug, the cuddle chemical, the the hug drug. There's a number of different names for it. And it's the hormone oxytocin, which is well known as a reproductive hormone and it plays a role in breastfeeding. But it's also a very, very important cardiovascular hormone. Basically, what it does is it protects the heart and it protects the arteries. So put this into perspective. When you be kind, because of how that makes you feel, your brain and your body, your heart generates this hormone that actually protects your heart and it protects your arteries. It actually parks on the lining of the arteries. It causes the walls of the arteries to soften. And as they soften, the arteries expand in size So the heart no longer has to work quite as hard to get the blood through. But it's a physical effect on the arteries caused by being kind because of how that makes you feel. Just like there's a physical effect on the heart and the arteries caused by stress. So this is what I mean by kindness is physiologically the opposite of stress. Bronnie Ware. It's it's not that we have to be happy all day, every day. That's unrealistic. We need the contrast to appreciate the blessings and to actually know our real capabilities. We ha- we have to have that contrast. But it's about realising that, okay, we all suffer, we all are stretched, we all have to grow, but we can still find blessings within that and we can still find happy moments within the hardest times. We can still choose to focus on something happier than just taking on stuff that's going to hold us down all the time. Mm. And it's not it's not denial, it's actually just bringing small conscious choices in to say, okay, life's really hard right now, but I've got people who love me. If I died, someone would notice. 
Kate Langbrook. I believe that people are resilient and strong and beautiful and kind because that's been my experience in life. Not exclusively, obviously, but that's what I believe. Paul Selig. You know, you don't know what the ramifications of your choices are and just smiling at a stranger may actually change the course of history. You don't know the trajectory of any choice you make. Mm. And I thought back to my own life and when I was 25 and I was just quitting drinking and somebody gave me a phone call out of the blue. I mean, I never, you know, and told me what to do. And I was stunned that somebody cared enough to call. And because this person cared enough to call some stranger, I actually did what he suggested. And I've, I've never seen that man again, as long as I've lived 32 years, he may be dead, completely changed the Mm. course of my life. And, And frankly, everybody's life that I've interacted with ever since. You understand? We don't know what these things are. We Mm. may never, you know, we may never. We're here to teach each other. We come to this world with a unique opening to our story, a bag full of joy and sorrow, hardships and gifts, supporters and foes. We have different pieces to work from, but it is up to us how we create our storyline. When we start shifting our thought patterns to positive ones and are grateful for what we have and what we have achieved, we start writing the script for the most glorious life. Marissa Peer. Oh, I'm enough is the number one because what happens with people who say, I'm an addict. Whether you're an addict or a compulsive shopper or a compulsive hoarder or you're compulsively needy and need a ton of praise from other people, whatever that is, without question, you have a belief, I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not interesting enough. I'm not successful enough, not attractive enough, not worthy enough. And if you go, I am enough, your mind goes, of course. You see, when you say, oh, I'm a goddess, your mind goes, no, you're not. You you haven't even washed your hair. You're not a goddess. You're living in an apartment with five other people. You haven't even got your own car. You're not a goddess. We go, I'm going to sing that song, hey, I'm a rock star. I got my rock. And mind goes, I don't think you're a rock star. You haven't got any money. Where is your fan base if you're a rock star? But when you say to the mind, I am enough, it Mm. goes, well, of course you are. Because it remembers that innate belief you were born with your enoughness. I'm enough. Tim's story. And I teach that we go through recovery and discovery at the same time. So to be sick means to be ill, to be fading, to be fading. So some are, some are sick because of the mourning of their father passing away or their mother passing away or their grandparents. Some are sick because of a divorce or a challenge in relationships or their daughter's not doing well or the son's not going, doing well. So as you know, it could be physical sickness, mental, could be emotional. So I, I do believe that all of us are sick in some way and we're trying to get better. So we're going through recovery. But if you're not careful, you'll stay in the recovery zone. Yes. To, when you're in the recovery zone, watch this. Everything is very singular, singular. I don't feel good. I don't feel good. What I try to get people that are struggling with cancer or they're struggling with an illness that is not supposed to be cured is to try to daily look at the discovery zone. Wow, look at that. The sun is still shining. 
or the rain is still coming down? Hmm. Or did you just see the butterfly go by? So I think that it's very important that when you are sick in any form or fashion to look for the discovery. And that's the innocence of children. Children are looking for discovery every day of their life. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, that's why they, they, they wake up and they say, can I play? Oh, you have to get ready for school. But then can I play? Yeah, but then you have to do your homework. But then can I play? Yes, but then you have to eat. But can I play after that? They're in the discovery zone. Claire Bowditch. So I'm 21 years old. A Frank Hath sends this book and I open it and it says, the symptoms that you were going through are all part of a, what she called nervous suffering, a nice title. The book was called Self-Help for Your Nerves and I would have thrown it in the bin if I hadn't have been so desperate. Yeah. I thought, you know, this is not going to work for me. Just to have a kind voice explain to me, I will recover. The shakiness, the obsessive ruminating thoughts, the lack of sleep, this is all normal, natural um, reaction. You have a parasympathetic nervous system and it's been agitated, you know, and I went, oh, thank you. Okay, that explained it for me. It's, and then slowly funny, I could recover. It? It's when someone says to you, you're going to be okay. Oh, isn't that powerful? It is so, so powerful. So isn't the trick of life then, and I've mm. found this, that we learn to parent ourselves in that way, to Completely. tell ourselves you're going to be okay. And that cultivation of that voice and the cultivation of the ability to name my inner critic, who I called mm. Frank, and mm. begin, you know, and I, I tell a five-year story in five minutes here, but that I began to be able to understand that critic is my survival brain. It thinks it's doing the right thing. It needs to be told to sit in the corner. We are just here having a chat and a cappuccino. We don't need to panic right now. There's, yeah. no, there's no danger. So learning to train our own brains and tell ourselves better stories is really the reason I wrote this book. Hugh Van Kylenberg. To practice gratitude, very simply, it's at the end of the day, it's writing down three things that went well for you. It's not writing three things you're grateful for. It's not writing three unbelievable things you have in your life. It's three things that went well for you. I have someone commented on my shirt today. <laughs> little <laughs> I things. love that. Yeah, it's, it's little things because a lot of people, when they practice gratitude, they make the mistake. Oh, I won't say mistake because it will work for some people, but a lot of people will write down three things they're grateful for. Now, if you do that for a week, you'll get to the end of the week and you'll find you're repeating yourself. So you'll say family, friends, food, water, job, house, car. You either feel guilty because you can't think of things or you start repeating yourself. Now, both those two are unpleasant experiences. You get a bit bored or you, you feel guilty. So it doesn't work. People stop after about a week. So if you actually change that to what are three things that went well for me today, every day you have a unique experience. You have a unique, you know, three things that went well. Now, for me, I've already got my three from today. What is it? Is it just the reflection? Well, what it does is it actually rewires your brain so that you become someone who's good at scanning the world for the positives. Amazing. In Australia, we're seven times more likely to notice a negative than a positive. How's that? <laughs> we're just, we're so easily sucked in by a negative. But when you do this every night, you actually rewire your brain and you become good at picking up the good things that happen. There is so much good stuff happening around us, but we miss it all the time. This simple act, after 21 days, you'll find a bit of a shift where you start to find yourself looking at the positives. And then after six weeks, the changes that start to happen are quite significant. Things like, you know, quality of sleep improves. Um, you become more optimistic. You become more enthusiastic. You have more energy, all these wonderful things. And this is all um, research from University of uh, Massachusetts, UCLA, um, University of Pennsylvania. One of the things that a researcher found, after eight days of doing this, you reduce suicidal ideation. So for someone who's in a really, really dark place, this is a really powerful practice after eight days. 
Meditation is one of the key practices to calming the mind and the body. The effects it has had on me personally are profound. When we meditate, it has an effect on neural pathways in our brain and body. It strengthens the connections between your brain's assessment, awareness and primal centres, allowing you to process information with more clarity. This means that we don't react as strongly to the triggers and worries that might have once agitated us and that we can make better choices. The more we meditate, the less fear and anxiety we have, gaining a greater understanding of our thoughts. If there was one practice I would recommend that would change your life forever, this is it. Johnny Pollard. I lead, you know, with everything that I do mm. with meditation. You know, I'm, I'm most known as a meditation teacher yeah. um, because I believe that that is the single most important tool that an individual needs in order to, one, first quell the hyper excitation in the nervous system, settle it down. That's what meditation does. Yeah. It launders the stimulation, the, the impressions of the stimulation, stress from the system. It launders fatigue. It rejuvenates us. But it also exposes our mind, our awareness to the deeper truth of who we are. And not just from an intellectual standpoint, we have the direct experience of it. Our nature is revealed to us in the meditative process. Just by turning our attention inward and practicing particular techniques, we become exposed to the truth of who we are. Mm. And then we know it. And once we know it, we're like, oh, okay, am I going to ignore that or am I going to do something about it? And if I can remain present in another person's life for a long enough period of time. I can ensure that the lights stay on long enough for them to become self-sufficient to continue doing the work themselves. Sharon Salzberg. I think it's very um, freeing and it's, it's very independent. It's like you don't need equipment really. Uh, You don't need a super special environment. Um, we may go to a super special environment or special environment in a kind of a training period, you know, like going off and doing an intensive retreat, but it's a part of everyday life. And so people sometimes say to me, well, my best meditation is when I'm swimming or when I'm running or when I'm sketching or when I'm singing. And why can't that be my meditation? And I say, well, I think it can be your meditation. Mm. And for me, one of my goals is to try to offer to everybody something they can do anywhere. You know, so like, let's say you're at work and tempers are starting to flare yeah. and you're starting to get very anxious. You can't, there's no pool, you know, you're not going to start running around the room, <laughs> you know, presumably you're not going to start sketching or singing, but you can be breathing. You know, you can be grounding your awareness in your body. You could be feeling your breath. You could be seeing your impulses, you know, and deciding whether you want to follow them or not. And so um, it's so independent. It's so free of encumbrance and conditions that I just think it's an amazing methodology, set set of methodologies uh, for clarity, for concentration, for kindness, and so on. I think it's hard for different reasons for different people. Like, clearly it was hard for me in the beginning because of all that judgment, you know, and so um, if I, for example, sat in not in retreat context, but just at, at wherever I was living in India, you know, and things felt lovely and my body felt serene and I was all peaceful and I, I think, oh, good, I'm going to live in India for the rest of my life feeling exactly like this and 
when I was bored or restless or my knee hurt or my back hurt, I'd get up. I think it's, I can't do it. It doesn't work. And I went to one of my teachers, a different teacher, a man named Manindra, and described that pattern. And he said to me, or for you, I have just one piece of advice. And that is just put your body there. You know, mm. one day it's going to feel one way. Another day it's going to feel another way. It's okay. Just put your body there. You just have to do it. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us to be that patient, have a long-term perspective, to even know that's true. You know, we can jump in with judgment so quickly. Like, you know, I'm not doing it right. Um, And so I think a a tremendous support is having good instruction. Um, You know, something I say ad nauseum, I'm sure no one who's ever sat with me, you know, has not heard it. Everyone's heard it, um, is that, The key, for example, if you're doing the particular technique of resting your attention on the feeling of the breath, um, the key moment actually happens after you've been distracted. You know, it's not a question of like squeezing your attention down and holding Mm. on to the breath so your mind never wanders. Your mind will wander. But what do you do then when you realize, oh, you know, I haven't been with the breath? Can you let go more gracefully? Can you start over again with a kind of a full heart and with some kindness to yourself or did you just go you know and start judging yourself and usually we do do that so so that's a whole training and beginning again and making a mistake and being able to start over and having resilience and so on what is a life of greatness to you brendan favola you live every day of it you'll ask because one day it will be Mm. And that is a true words never been spoken because you don't actually know when it's going to be your last day. Just to have fun because life's way too short and you don't want to waste it. Elizabeth Robinson. When we realise who we are as a humanity, as a human being, to commune with others in a way that imbues love and faith, that takes them out of their trauma and into a renewed hope, that is our greatest life. Laura Nyrider. Life of greatness to me is a life that is focused outside of you. It's focused on others, on helping others, and on building something bigger than yourself, working towards ideals that are bigger than yourself, right? It's not just about personal comfort, contentment. Um, you know, those things are important, of course, but a life of greatness to be really great. It's about, it's about doing something bigger than yourself, um, serving something bigger than yourself. Um, that's something that, that, you know, I try to do. Wayne Swass. Try to have a positive impact in the lives of other people and some of those people you may never know. Dr. Bruce Lipton. A, a life that contributes to the whole, that we're all part of something bigger and that we have a role to play. And, uh, If we contribute to the whole, then we are building a world collectively that's better than the one that we came in with. And so a life of greatness is, can you overcome these obstacles and and then contribute something very positive to the world? Uh, Because as you contribute something positive, you uplift everyone around. And as I said, if if you want to be happy, there's nothing better than to be in the middle of everyone who is happy. It's contagious. Claire Bowditch. I've got to be honest and say that's actually quite simple. You know, a life of greatness is, you know, if I defined it for anyone else, uh, um, you know, it would be impossible. But for me, I don't think greatness is necessarily anything to do with 
being rewarded by the world mm. or, you know, winning anything. I actually think it's waking up each morning and it sounds so simple, but it's inspired by my parents, <sighs> who I love. <laughs> and it's, you know, am I capable of choosing love today? It's that simple. I think that's a, if you can ask yourself that question and lean into it or just be, live that out in action as much as possible, then that to me is a life well lived. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search A Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.